0: Have your Bibles, if you'll take them out with me, turn to uh, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at that passage today. And uh, before we get there, I want to read from the Gospel of John, John chapter 13, verse 34. This is something that Jesus is quoted as saying. He writes, A new command I give you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then Jesus says these words that have inspired and sometimes haunted the church for the last 20 centuries. This is verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said to his followers, if you forget everything else that I have said, remember To love one another. All the commandments, all the prophets boil down to this. Love. Love God. Love others. Love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you actually stop and ask yourself, what is it as a church that we have to offer our community? What does Mission Covenant have to give? When are people going to know that God is at work in our communities? Well, it is not going to be when we win theological arguments. It is not going to be when we win cultural wars. It's not going to be about clever strategy or showing off how spiritually mature we are. Jesus said, by this, the whole world will know that you are following me, that God has come to earth, penetrated this fallen sinful planet. This is the way the world is going to be filled with hope. It's when it sees sees people loving one another. In fact, the whole message of the Bible is love one another. Well, Jesus leaves. And his followers remain, and John, a follower of Jesus, is writing to a little band that is struggling over this. And John wants to bring them back, and actually wants to bring us back, to what is absolutely indispensable. So he begins in verse 3, he says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. To be a follower of Jesus is to live a life of love. Like Jesus. He says in verse 7, Dear friends, literally dearly beloved, He's always reminding them who they are. I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. And anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. And they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. You see, Jesus says that the one command is to love each other. There is a book written a couple years ago by an author, and you're going to think I'm making this up, but, but I'm not. His name is Robert Roberts. And he writes some uh, really interesting things. Uh, Robert Roberts writes about a family therapist in Kansas City named Jim Roberts uh, who was visiting the fourth grade class of his son Daniel. And the teacher had organized a balloon stomp game. I don't know if you're familiar with how you play the balloon stomp game. Uh, But each child has a balloon tied to his or her leg. And the object is to obliterate everybody else's balloon without anything happening to your balloon. It's everybody for themselves, each against all. And as soon as someone has stomped your balloon, you're out. And when everybody's balloons are shredded, the child who has the intact balloon is the winner. So the teacher gave the signal. The children leaped into action, uh, going after each other's balloons. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, they were all doing their best to protect themselves against the others, except for one or two had kind of cowered away, and their balloons soon were laid to waste. And in a few seconds, all the balloons were burst but one. Then a disturbing thing happened. This time, another class of intellectually disabled children was brought in and prepared to play the same game. Balloons were tied to their legs, and they were briefed on the rules of play, and Robert says, I got a sinking feeling in my stomach. And I wanted to spare those kids the brawl that was about to take place. They had only the foggiest notion of what this was all about. After a few moments of confusion, the idea got across to one or two of them that the balloons were supposed to be stomped, and gradually it caught on. As the game got underway, it was clear these kids missed the spirit of it. They went about methodically, intentionally getting their balloons stomped. One girl carefully held her own balloon in place so that a boy could pop it. And then he did the same for her. And when all of the balloons were gone, the entire class cheered in unison. Roberts writes, These children had mistaken this brawl for an exercise in community. In the original game, only one child could win. They discovered how to make everybody a winner. In normal balloon stomping, the participants are alienated from one another. It's you against me, and all these children played it. As these children played it, the game was an occasion for love. Instead of feeling anxious about fellow players... You knew the others were there to help you along the way. In the original game, you wouldn't be likely to learn about love. But the play of these children seemed to foster generosity, trust, cooperation, gentleness, and concern for one another. So you have to ask yourself the question, Who got the game right? And who got the game wrong? And which game are we playing in life? John says to his beloved children, to you and me, that there are only two games at the end of the day. John is always pressing us to make a decision. Up to this point, you probably have noticed this about John. One of the ways that he presses us to make a decision is is by using a technique called dualism. That is, he's always teaching in terms of opposites or contrasts. So for John, it's always love or hate, truth or lies, light, darkness, God or the world. And here is his particular choice that he's laying out here in verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, that is in Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. He says there's a new game in town. And of course, that new commandment that he's referring to is what Jesus says. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you love one another. You know, this actually happened at a church that I believe was in South America. There was someone teaching there, and it was the time for the message. And so the minister got up in the pulpit and said, love one another. And then he went and just sat down. Everybody sat there staring at him. Nobody knew what to do. So he waited for a few moments. He got back up. And said, love one another. And then he went and sat down again. And everybody just sat there. It seemed like a really short message. So he came back up the third time and said, love one another. And then he sat down. And a few people caught on to the rules. And they turned to somebody next to them and asked, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Is there some area where you could use some help? Or some encouragement. And the whole congregation of people heard a commandment in a new way and started to love one another. Now you'll notice that I'm not doing, I'm not doing that this morning. Uh, primarily because I get paid by the word. Uh, so some days I'll try that. But this morning, the message is really simple. It is so simple that it's hard to talk about it without junking it up or complicating it. It's not a rocket science. John says, here's the commandment. Love one another. So let me ask you, how is the church doing at that? How are Jesus followers doing at that one commandment? You know, in in John's day, they were not doing so well. In this church in John's day, there were people who were claiming to walk in the light, claiming to be spiritually mature. They knew a whole lot of stuff, and they were saying to other people, you should follow me, listen to me, and they failed to love. They were judgmental, misleading, confusing people. In fact, we know in verse 19 that they actually abandoned the community. They went out and abandoned the very people they were supposed to love. And John says, I want to drag you back to square one. If you want to know what maturity looks like, here it is. Verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light. In other words, whoever claims to be a spiritual giant, they think they're mature in Christ. But hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Again, John likes talking in dualisms. In John's language, hating is the same thing as failing to love. It's a refusal to love. Verse 10, 11. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. John says, how can you forget that it's all about love? In John's day, they had a hard time with that. And to tell you the truth, when you look at the church around the world many times, I'm not sure it's any easier today. I'll put this in a form of a question. Have you ever met anybody who has been in the church for a while, long enough to know better, who is not a fully loving person? Did you ever have someone stomp on your balloon? You know, years ago, I remember a couple came to me and there was not much love in them that I could see. And they complained about a whole list of things and did it uh, in words in a very hurtful way. They did not like the music. They did not like the drums. They didn't like children running around in the church. They didn't like the way I dressed. They didn't like the way that I talked. And at the very end of it, they said, but Pastor James, we love you in the Lord. I think that phrase gets so misused. If you find yourself not liking somebody, You don't think good thoughts about them. You don't want what's best for them. Believing the best about them or behaving in a loving way towards them. People will often say, there is nothing likable about you. We don't like you, but we're Christians. And of course, Christians have to love everybody, so this must be loving you in the Lord. They didn't love me. Loving someone in the Lord is not a lower form of love. Loving someone in the Lord is the very highest form of love. It's loving someone as Jesus would love them. And that is part of what John says that's a new commandment that has been given. Jesus said, A new commandment that I give you, love one another as I have loved you. People have always known that we are to love, but Jesus says, as I have loved you. And how does Jesus love? Self-sacrificially, with abandonment, generously, without regard to persons, even his own enemies. Jesus loves. Now I'll tell you the truth. I didn't love them much either. And not because of what was said. Here's the truth. I'm being very honest. More often than I'd like to admit, I've stomped on my share of balloons and have failed to love others. And my guess is I'm probably not the only one in this room who's done that as well. So think about your words. Are your words consistently gracious gentle, and life-giving? In Christ-honoring ways, do you handle conflict with brothers and sisters here in the body? Are you truthful? Do people find you a source of life? Or do your words pop a fair number of balloons? How about giving an honest assessment of your heart towards people? Is it warm and tender? Or if you're honest, is it a little cold towards others? Is your first reflexive response to people, especially unloving people, generally gracious? Or is it cynical, hostile? In John's day, as it is in our day, the truth about loving one another is that there is always room to grow And John says that the way we recognize a child of God or someone who is spiritually mature is by love. When someone asks you, How's your spiritual life going? We often think about a number of things. We we think about, well, did I have a devotional time this morning? Did I pray this morning? Did I attend church this weekend? Did I tithe? Any number of things. Did I not do any major sins? Like, did I not rob a bank this week or sleep with someone that I shouldn't have? But when someone asks you, how's your spiritual life going? The central question that ought to come to mind is, am I growing in love for God and others. John says that is what your life is all about. If someone claims to be a spiritual giant and they're not loving, they're delusional. Walking around in the dark. Have no idea where they're going. You see, life is all about love. So why is it so difficult to love? If love is so central, then why is it so difficult for us? Well, verses 3 through 11, he lays out the centrality of loving one another. And then verses 12 and 14, and then in 15 and 18, he gives us a couple answers to the question. And so in the time that remains, I want to talk about two reasons why we have difficulty loving one another. The first one comes in verses 12 and 14, and that is we forget that in every essential way we are all alike. We are sinners in need of grace. And the second reason is in verses 15 and 18, and it has to do with a word that doesn't get used a whole lot anymore, and we're going to get into this word a bit, and that is worldliness. What creeps into the church, keeps us from loving one another, is worldliness. We get worldly. So first of all, we forget that we were all sinners and saved by grace. Look at verse 12 and 13. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now with some variation, verse 14, he does the same thing and he goes through the same groups. When John addresses these little children, fathers, and young people, people have wondered who is he referring to? Some people have guessed that he's referring to different chronological age groups or different levels of maturity. Uh, Either one of those may be right, but you'll notice one difficulty though is that he puts them in a little bit of an odd order. He starts with children, goes to the oldest one, the fathers, then he comes back to the middle ones, the young people. So another suggestion, which I think is on to something here, is that John is using a picture to indicate qualities associated with stages of life that are true of all believers. All his beloved children. Often he refers to the whole congregation as his children. And he says that all of you have been given the innocence of childhood as a gift. And it's because of Jesus and not because you never sinned or you're so perfect. Your sins are forgiven on the count of Jesus' name. He says that all of you have the wisdom that we associate with age. It's because you know God and are in a relationship with God, not because you're so smart. The whole congregation has the vitality of youth. It's because you have the victory of Jesus that you have overcome the evil one. Not because you're so strong in and of yourselves. The victory of Jesus is your victory. And I want to say a word about our solidarity in each one of these areas. When we realize we are all sinners who have been forgiven by grace. There is a humility and a freedom from judging others that just flows out of that. When people live in the awareness that we're all forgiven sinners in need of grace, then how can you write somebody off and pass judgment on somebody in the body of Christ? How can you be against somebody? Now in life you may need to confront, but that must happen in love. Not in smugness, not in superiority, not in self-righteousness. And that's why when I talk about this, is the fact that we're not just forgiven, we're forgiven sinners. There is such a wonderful, liberating grace when we live in the reality that we're forgiven sinners. We get freed to love each other. And stop playing the balloon stop game. Verse 12, John says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The truth about you is that you have all sinned and you are all forgiven. It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. You've already got it. You don't have to impress each other with how smart you are, how much of the Bible you have at your fingertips. He says in verse 14, I write to you because you all know God. You don't have to drop names with each other. How could you drop a bigger name than God? You all know Him. And if you all know Him, what's going to trump that? Stop the game of superiority. Love each other. And he says these wonderful words verse 13 and then again verse 14 I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. He says again I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. What does he mean by this? Obviously he isn't saying that all struggle is over for us. Who has overcome the evil one? It's Christ. Where did he overcome the evil one? On the cross and in the tomb. That's your victory. And for some reason in God's eyes, you merit the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now God sees you as his beloved child. He is saying that you are beloved of God. In fact, a little later on in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Dear children... Look at the love that God has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. You are loved by God, you are the beloved of God. And here's the truth about us we want to be loved, so we do all kinds of nutty things to compete, and struggle, and fight to prove that we're worth loving. John says, don't do it. In order to love one another, you must experience yourself the love of God. You know, at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. But before he does that, Jesus is baptized, and the Bible says that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and then there's this voice in Matthew three seventeen, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am pleased. Jesus lives out His identity as the beloved of God. And when the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan. Satan says, satisfy your appetites. Turn these stones into bread. Satan says, do something to look spectacular. Throw yourself down from this building and angels will pick you up. Satan says, fall down, worship me. You can be really important. I'll give you all the powers of the kingdoms. And to every single one of those things, Jesus says, no. He doesn't need them. Because he's loved by God. What more does he need? John says, here's the truth about us. You are beloved of God. And once you've lived in that for a while, then you can love one another and stop running around stomping on other little kids' balloons to prove how good and important and how strong you are. And instead, you kneel down in service and in love. You are loved by God. So what else do you need to prove? What are you going to put on your resume that is going to be more meaningful than the beloved of God? Those words are so ultimate and cosmic. So John says, we are going to love one another. We need to experience our unity as forgiven sinners, as the beloved. And then he says there is something we have to combat, and that's worldliness. A couple words about that. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now here's what's going on. The human heart is made for love and cannot help loving. It's not a question of whether or not you love. It's a question of what are you going to love. And if you do not love God and God's children, then your heart will find something else to love. And John talks about that as the world. When he talks about the world, he is not saying, don't love the earth, don't love its beauty or nature. The Bible uses this term world or cosmos in different ways. Sometimes it says, like in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's talking about physical creation and that it's a very good thing. Uh, Sometimes it says, like John 3, 16, God so loved the world. means the people that are in it. What John is talking about here is the world as a system of attitudes, values, behaviors that are opposed to God and His kingdom. He is talking about the game where you go around stomping on everybody else so you can be number one. And if you don't love God and His people, the truth is your heart then is going to flow to a substitute that is not going to last And that proves to be empty and hollow. That's why he says in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. It's got an expiration date. And it's already arrived. In light of eternity, the balloon stop game's already expired. And he breaks down those values in three ways. Verse 16, he talks about the lust of the flesh. Flesh also has special meaning here. It doesn't simply mean your physical body, even though it, it, it includes that. It's talking about human nature that's apart from the grace of God and is prone to sin, and this can get into the church. It's the craving to succeed at all cost. It's craving to satisfy sexual appetites in ways that are not God-honoring. It's craving comfort rather than serving others. It's the lust of the flesh. Then he says there's the lust of the eyes where we, there's greed, envy, being captivated by outward appearance, putting on a show. And then there's the pride of life, the need to dominate, the need to control, the need to win the game. And these run all through the Bible. The very first temptation is in the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 3 verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. That's the appetite, is the desire of the flesh. Looking good is the desire of the eyes. And you remember the serpent said, You will be like God. It's the pride of life. That theme runs all the way through Jesus. Jesus, after his baptism, is tempted in the wilderness. Satan says, turn this stone into bread. It's the lust of the flesh. Cast yourself down. The angels will bear you up. You're going to look really good and impressive in everybody else's eyes. It's the lust of the eyes. Fall down, worship me. All these kingdoms will be yours. It's the pride of life. John says, Don't love the world. It's all passing away. It's here today, gone tomorrow. The expiration date has already expired. John says, Love what will last. Love Jesus and the people that mean so much to him. Everything is about love. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to this earth to live amongst us. And to show us how to love God and how to love others. And then going to the cross. His body broken. His blood poured out. So that we can be free. From Satan. From sin. From our own self. And now we can live this life of love. Loving you completely and fully. And loving others. God help each every one of us here today. To turn away from the games of our world. Of domination. Enviness and pride. God help us to have hearts of love. Love for every single person that we see. Love as you have loved. Help us to be a church that is known for our love, that seeks to to give that love, share that love to all those around. Help us to be that light in our communities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.